Make sure to give my dad a five-star review. Get, make sure to like and subscribe to his YouTube. And thank you for listening and enjoy the show. show. <laughs> If there is an issue that there's no excuse to be waiting on, it's reforming our social security system. So yes, um, part of your benefits will still be there, but not the ones you've been promised. And we're going to have to do some combination of slowing the growth of benefits, I think for people who need them less so that people who depend on them will still have them and raising some revenues. But I honestly think there's a better use for revenues than putting it all into social security because we are not investing in our kids. We are not investing in our human capital. We are not investing in the changes that are going on in our economy from globalization and technology. So, like, there can only be that one use of a dollar. Before I put more money for benefits for people other than those who really need them, I think about what the best use of that dollar is. Hey, welcome back, Faithful Politics listeners and viewers. If you're watching us on our YouTube channel, I am your political host, Will Wright, and your faithful host Josh Bertram isn't um, able to make it today. He's off declassifying a bunch of sermons using his mind. So um, in his place, we have um, Corey Nathan, who is the host of the Talking Politics Without Killing Each Other podcast here to join me. So thanks so much for uh, for joining me, uh, Corey. You bet, Will. It's always great to see you. <laughs> and and our guest this week is Maya McGinnis. She's the president of the Bipartisan Committee for Responsible Federal Budget. Her areas of expertise include budget, tax, and economic policy. And as a leading budget expert and a political independent, she has worked closely with members of both parties and serves as a trusted resource on Capitol Hill. So thank you, Maya, for being here. Sure. Happy to join you. Yeah. So I I just want to say, you know, your organization is probably one of the best organizations I feel, um, you know, out there to give us really, really good information. Um, I read a lot of your stuff during the Trump era, I'm reading a lot of your stuff now during Biden. Um, and and I have one sort of pressing question before we kind of get on to um, some of the other um, topics that I'm hoping you can answer. Like, so, so what was the deal with the shortage of coins during COVID? <laughs> you can, well, unfortunately, you're starting with a question I can't answer. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> got it. Okay, because I still see those signs everywhere, and I'm just like, I don't, I don't understand. I mean, I've got plenty. I feel like right. I'm rich. I've got a ton my of coins. My coin you know? drawer, my little coin collection place, still going strong. So, all right, they're well, in the same place all right. as all the toilet paper was. <laughs> yeah, that one, that one, I know to be true. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, um, so so because your your expertise is. Um, economics, um, budgets, and um, I'll admit that that's not necessarily my my strong suit. Um, so I'm wondering if you can kind of give us a state of the union, state of the economic situation in the U.S., um, you know, and if you're able to explain it to me like I'm five, um, you know, maybe in context of, you know, my household or business or something like that. So let me try to let me try to explain. Hmm, there's a lot of, that could be unpacked out of that question already. So, and I want to try to cover some things kind of broadly, and then we can dig down as as people are interested. But I'll talk a little bit about the economy, the fiscal situation, our budgetary situation, and what's going on right now with inflation. So, in terms of the economy overall, one of the main things that you want, no matter what your politics are, and no matter whether you think we should have a big government or a small government. 
a growing economy is always better than a not growing economy because as our resources expand, depending on how they're distributed, depending on how who's getting how much in wages and profits and returns on investments, all those things, everybody can potentially be better off, right? A growing economy can make more people better off. And when you are a polarized country, as we certainly are, if you have a shrinking economy or shrinking resources or resources that aren't divided in a way that feels equitable, equitable, that leads to greater tension. And so basically the first point is you want an economy that's growing. Our economy is growing, and that's a really good thing. However, a lot of what's driving the growth in our economy a lot these days is government borrowing. And this is what I focus on. My nonpartisan group is very focused on when we're borrowing, does it make sense? And the, the short answer to that is most often it doesn't. Most often our politicians are borrowing because they don't want to be inconvenienced with having to pay for the bills, whether it's offsetting the cost of tax cuts or spending increases. More and more we borrow. And so that's why our total debt, including some of the debt we owe to ourselves, is as high as $30 trillion these days. But so one, our economy is growing. Two, we are dangerously over indebted. Our debt as a share of GDP is almost 100 percent. The record that was set right after World War II, after we'd fought a world war, was 106. We're going to surpass that in this decade. So we will have the highest debt relative to our economy we've ever had this decade, unless something dramatically improves. That is a huge problem for lots of reasons. I can also go into that in more depth. But it has negative effects on your economy, your wages, job security, standard of living, whether we're prepared for the next emergency like COVID where you do need to borrow um, on interest rates. And if your interest rates go up, then how much you pay on that government debt, your interest payments becomes more expensive. That's happening right now. And it's also dangerous because it leaves us dependent on other countries, oftentimes who we are not aligned with, China, some of the oil producing countries, to lend us money to pay our bills. I don't think it's a good idea for a country to ever be overly dependent on anything, particularly another country that you're not um, in a close alliance with. Then finally, we have inflation. And we all, you know, inflation's the headline in the news right now. Inflation happened because of a number of reasons. Basically, the demand to buy things got really high because through some of the, the last bill in the COVID, COVID spending, when President Biden came into office, he passed the American Rescue Plan. We knew at the time, we warned at the time, it's too big. It's more than the economy needed. That puts so many more dollars in the economy. It causes people to demand more. And then meanwhile, we're not able to supply that, particularly because of what's going on in Russia and Ukraine and because of some supply chain issues where we can't get all of the goods that we need to build other things or sell. So you've got too much demand, too little supply. That means prices start to shoot up. That's what causes inflation. And then if that means people ask for big raises and wages uh, when they get them, that leads to more demand, which pushes inflation up even more. So you're in a dangerous cycle, which is where we are. So bottom line. You want the economy to grow. We're in a good place right there. But as the Fed responds to inflation, we may go into a recession where the economy is not growing. You want to borrow when it makes sense to economically, but not when you're just plain unwilling to pay the bills. That's where we are right now. We're just not willing to pay for what we do. So we are borrowing that money, shifting that bill to the future. We are dangerously, dangerously over leveraged in too much debt. And finally, we have inflation because we have too much money chasing too few goods. And the ways that we're going to address that are not fun. They're relatively painful. And so we're in for a very bumpy ride in the economy. I don't think a five-year-old would have followed that. <laughs> my, 
my kids when I explained to them, their eyes glazed over. But hopefully I did that some justice to that. So <clears throat> I was telling Will earlier that uh, I, I started out in the professional world as a stockbroker. So if economists uh, could only mature to the level of five-year-olds, they'd be the average stockbroker like the guys I work with in the boiler room. <laughs> Um, I know uh, Will has some questions about debt deficit and uh, definitely have some questions about interest rates, but I did want to, I, I did want to ask you, may, maybe it is an ignorant question. When you say a growing economy is good, is some inflation part of a growing economy and is some inflation actually good for the economy and for, you know, regular folks like us? That was quite a buildup for a very sophisticated question. Oh, um, I didn't think it was sophisticated. So, but. Well <laughs> done. Thank you. Do this. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's um, I mean, ironically, just a few years ago, we were much more worried about deflation than inflation because deflation is also bad. And a lot of people say, why is inflation that bad? I mean, it actually, it, it can help in some things. Um, if you've borrowed a lot of money and you have inflation, it can make it better because you're inflating away your debts. It becomes smaller. Um, but overall, that's right. You want some controllable amount of inflation in your economy. The Fed, we normally talk about a 2% target of inflation as being a reasonable and healthy level where things are continuing to grow, but um, not so much that things are becoming more expensive relative to one's wages. The problem that we have is when it becomes this dangerous price wage cycle, which I believe we're in right now, where in order to buy the things people need, they really do need to have higher wages. Now, we want higher wages always. That's a good thing. But you want it when the value of that is not being deflated through inflation that is much higher than, I mean, where we are now, 8%, that is much higher than what we can keep up with, with wage growth or other things. And we are in that spiral. So yes, a healthy amount, 2%, give or take, is something that you want. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, Josh Bertram here, faithful host of the Faithful Politics Podcast. I want to let you know about a compelling new spinoff, the Faith Roundtable, where I'll be interviewing top faith leaders, theologians, and scholars to unpack the pressing issues that are shaping the church in America today. We'll dive into topics like faith and public life, social justice, and how we can engage our communities more effectively. Make sure you don't miss any of our enlightening conversations by subscribing to it on our YouTube channel. Join me at the Faith Roundtable, where deep discussion meets thoughtful insight. So what are some tools an administration has to fight unhealthy inflation? What actions in this particular administration has this administration taken certain actions to exacerbate the situation we're in right now? So there's two main tools that you use to fight inflation, monetary policy, fiscal policy. And monetary policy is almost all of it. And fiscal policy is a small but sometimes important part. And I think fiscal policy is more important in this bout of inflation than, than often it is. So monetary policy is what the Federal Reserve does. And they have lots of different tools, but the most basic one is raising and lowering interest rates. To fight inflation, the Fed, just as they did recently, will raise the interest rates. That means there's less borrowing. And if people are borrowing less, that's less money that they're borrowing and then turning around putting in the economy, which fuels that ongoing inflation. So you bring interest rates up to slow inflation. That's what we've done in the past. It works. 
The question is how high up do those interest rates have to go? And in doing so, will it stop borrowing and economic growth to the point that you're back, you're in a recession? And that's the big discussion right now. Can the Fed do this, control inflation, get get on top of it without causing recession? The smart money money is betting that we cannot have that so-called soft landing, that this is, we waited too long, it is too out of control, it's going to take very steep interest rates, which are going to have negative effects on the housing market, the stock market, that's going to bring down the economic growth, that's going to mean there's there's going to be job loss and we're going to be in a recession. It's not a pretty story. I wish I weren't delivering that message. I think that that may be where we are headed. Um, the other tool that the administration controls, they don't control monetary policy. That is Chairman Jay Powell, who runs that and all of the Fed governors. And luckily for us, it's an apolitical institution. Doesn't happen enough. Politics messes up a lot of things, I tend to think. I love the, the premise of this whole podcast, understanding the different perspectives. But it's really good to have an institution that's not based on politics. Um, for instance, you always want around elections. Candidates never want the Fed to raise interest rates because they want to run the economy hot where it's growing really high. They don't worry about inflation as much as they need to because the short term, it looks like everything's good. It's growing. Then you realize that inflation's eating away at our standard of living. <laughs> the other tool federal government, and this is the one that policymakers really have control over, is fiscal policy. Are you borrowing and putting extra money in the economy? Or are you running a government surplus when you're taking in more in revenues than you're spending in government spending? And if you have a surplus, that actually pushes against inflation. So the less we borrow, the better for inflation. Now, I'm frustrated with the Biden administration on this front. And let me say again as a reminder, I am a very, very diehard political independent. Um, I have liked a lot of things this administration has done. I liked how they talked about fiscal policy. I liked a big, um, important piece of legislation they did called the Inflation Reduction Act, which really Senator Joe Manchin turned into something that reduced the deficit, a deficit reduction bill, first time in over a decade. I thought that was a huge accomplishment. But that is not the full story of what the administration has done on fiscal policy. Unfortunately, the full story is that since they have been in office, President Biden has approved either through legislation or executive orders $4.8 trillion in new borrowing over the next decade. I would say that the amount that should have been approved would have been at this point on net zero that we borrowed some to respond to COVID when he first came in. They borrowed too much and that helped set off inflation, but there should have been some more borrowing and then there should be some deficit reductions as soon as we saw inflation starting put in place. But $4.8 trillion in new borrowing is a astronomical amount of new borrowing at a time in the economy when it's bad for the economy, pushes towards inflation instead of against it. Um, and so I cannot give this administration high marks on the fiscal policy as it relates to inflation. Now, to be fair, I will also say that President Trump was also fiscally quite reckless. And in his administration, he borrowed seven and a half trillion dollars. That's over four years. This is only over two years so far. Um, less than two years, in fact. But he borrowed seven and a half trillion dollars for tax cuts and spending increases, all of which added to the debt. So this is this is the nature of my work. There is fiscal criticism that goes all around, and there are just too few members of Congress really focusing on this issue because it's hard. It's hard politically to say, I'm going to raise your taxes. Everyone hates that. Or I'm going to cut your spending. 
Everybody hates that. They say they want government spending to be cut, and then you say what it is, you know, <laughs> Social Security, Medicare um, programs in your in your district or in your community. Suddenly nobody wants that either. So it's very unpopular, the things we actually have to do to get control of the fiscal policy. But I will say uh, to govern is to choose. And we elected our political leaders to actually do the things to provide good governance, not borrowing to pay for everything. That's part of good governance, and it's something that's sorely lacking these days. Yeah, you know, when you're when you're talking in it, and I see this a lot, like when I read, um, you know, just news stories about money and and whatnot, and there's always like a ten year a ten year window. Um, like, what's what's the relevance what's of, the, what's of the what's up with Yeah, it's complicated because in budget world we talk in ten year numbers, and it's like what a trillion dollars already doesn't mean anything to me, and now you want to do ten year numbers instead of one. The reason is because it's, I mean, and and experts have debated this and struggled with this, but you want to put out numbers over the long term to actually show the effect of something. Many policies um, phase in gradually. So if you said, let's look at this climate bill or this tax increase or this, this, you know, pick your piece of legislation, and you looked at the cost this year, it might be negligible because the law you've put into place is going to take a while to be enacted and spend out money. Like a great example is the big bipartisan infrastructure bill that we passed last year. If you looked at the one-year numbers, it wouldn't tell you the accurate story. What you really need to see is once this policy is up and running, what the effects on the budget are. And so 10 years is what people have settled at to get a sense of the direction it's going in um, and the magnitude, because very few things are phased in quickly when it comes to big budgetary items. But it is confusing. Yeah, I was going to say, so... So I know that um, one of the main questions a lot of our our um, listeners have is in regards to the the student loan forgiveness um, thing that just you know that was just announced. Um, and um, some of the questions that I'm getting, you know, are concerns regarding you know how is this going to affect me as a taxpayer, um, you know, and d- does this set sort of like a dangerous precedent? You know, so the next Republican that comes into office is like. I want to, you know, forgive a bunch of people's car loans or something like that, which mortgage debt, yeah, yeah mortgage debt, mm-hmm. debt, whatever, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm curious if you can kind of speak to that, you know, like what's what's the immediate um, or long term, um, you know, significance of of forgiving, you know, I don't know, a couple hundred billion dollars worth of student loan debt. Yeah, it's a really important question. I like those people. I like your listeners who are calling and saying, as a taxpayer, what does this mean for me? Because mm-hmm. so often in budget world, people just think about what they're getting. Oh, thank mm-hmm. gosh, I really wanted that tax cut. Or, oh, good, this great program that's going to help me. There is the other side of the coin. And that's what our organization focuses on. You can't pretend that you can have something for nothing. And so as a taxpayer, you're either going to pay for it now or you or your kids are going to pay for it in the future. So the student debt forgiveness incredibly expensive. And ironically, the administration didn't even have an estimate of the cost of this. So we did an estimate. We have found it's going to cost about $500 billion, this amount of debt forgiveness. Another organization that's looked at it says it could be twice that much. So this is a huge ticket item. And it was done through executive order instead of Congress, which is not how you are supposed to wrestle with these big policy issues with big price tags. Now, I should say, I think the problem of out of control higher education costs and ensuing student debt is a huge problem that we need to address. But 
from both the fiscal perspective and the policy design perspective, this is not a fix. First off, $500 billion at a time when you're at near record levels of debt and 40-year high in, in inflation should not be put into place through borrowing. If you really think that's a good policy, you need a plan to pay for it. So that's on the fiscal front. It's reckless. On the policy design front, it is a problem. It is not targeted in that there's going to be a lot of debt forgiveness who people don't need it. They might have low income in the year or two that we're looking at, 2020, 2021, but they could be a lawyer. They could be coming out of graduate school to be a doctor. Their earnings potential could be huge. And so you could be forgiving the debt of somebody who is going to be one of the most well-off people in the country. That's poor policy design. Another poor policy design, of course, is that this is arbitrary and it happens to be people right now. But what about, for, you know, the kid who is a freshman right right now and is going to graduate in four years and they're not going to have their debt forgiven? Or are they? Are there going to be politicians who come in and just keep doing this to curry political favor? Or, as you said, are there going to be other debts that people are pressuring them to forgive? Now, the thing about student debt, of course, is that that's government, which is it's government debt. So they're able to forgive it. They couldn't do that for the private sector. But it does set off the Republicans and Democrats with like light bulbs going over their head off right now saying like, ah, that's a great way to buy voters right before an election. Why don't I try to meet that with something else? And that's the concern back to good governing. Instead of governing responsibly, we're now witnessing people attempting to buy votes, whether it's tax cuts, huge spending gifts, handouts, you know, checks. This is this is a dangerous precedent that we are setting. But possibly the worst outcome, I don't, I don't know how you said what the worst outcome is. If you can't tell, I think this is a really irresponsible policy. <laughs> I was shocked and really disappointed. It's actually going to have the effect more likely than of bringing cost of education down to make cost of education higher. The mm. reason is you now have colleges and graduate schools saying, don't worry. There's going to be more debt forgiveness in the future. This isn't a one-time thing. This is going to happen again. So you can borrow more. And the lender saying, we will approve you for more lending because it's likely you're going to have this debt forgiveness. And students saying, you know what? The next president's going to forgive this, so I'm going to take on more debt and not worry about it. And meanwhile, you have people who saved to pay for their own school, or a lot of my colleagues here were saying, oh my gosh, I just finish paying off my student debt, you know, and I'm not getting anything. You have a lot of people who feel really unfairly treated because of the non-level playing field in how this works, where people feel like for doing the right thing of saving, not buying much, saving more, paying off their debt, uh, they were punished instead of rewarded. So um, frankly, this is a policy that I think has no redeeming qualities other than that what it's trying to fix is very important, but it's going to fail to do that. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how this is challenged going forward, because the idea of uh, forgiving a huge chunk of debt for a lot of people, uh, not by legislation, but by executive order, is um, legally problematic. <laughs> yeah. So um, I did. I, I am curious, you, you already started to allude to this and, and what some of your concerns are, but uh, in reading a lot of your writing, you've expressed an understanding of, uh, and at times even support for the reasoning behind certain legislation. So I'm curious, how could Congress and an administration address big problems, uh, climate change, for example, in a more fiscally responsible way? Well, climate's a perfect one to ask. I mean, most of them we actually have, because I, I 
sometimes hate my role as going to Congress and whining, like, how are you going to pay for that? How are you going to pay for that? Because they never come with ideas. And so we try to be really solutions oriented. And so one of the things that we do is we have a whole library of called PayForce, where you can pull up a bunch of tax ideas, a bunch of ways to save money in healthcare, a bunch of spending programs to cut. Again, none of them are easy, but if you really want to do policy X and you don't have a pay for, we will provide hundreds of options to pay for them. So that's something that we do. Number two, this fall, uh, for anyone who's interested, keep an eye on our website. We are going to come out with a blueprint of how we could reduce our debt. It's time to go back and think about what do we need to do. It will be comprehensive. It will look at all parts of the budget, defense, social security, discretionary spending, taxes, all parts will be on, on the table for consideration. And we'll try to show how we could get somewhere more reasonable. Now, for climate, there happens to be a simple solution instead of having to go to our offsets library bank. But the best climate policy one could put in place would be a carbon tax, which actually raises money instead of costs money. It is a lot easier to raise money by taxing bads. So if you tax goods, things you want more of, like saving or income, you're going to get less of it. It's, it's counterproductive compared to if you tax things you want less of pollution, you know, think of things that you don't want and put a tax on them. That's why they have so-called sin taxes on, on like cigarettes uh, and stuff. Exactly. Um, as an ex-smoker, I, I remember many, many <laughs> Me years too. those costs are going up and they were expensive, but it's smarter to tax the things that you want. That's not why I quit. Luckily, I knew it was unhealthy for me, but it, it didn't hurt that it was becoming prohibitively expensive. But, um, you know, it's somewhat paternalistic, but it's smarter to tax things that you want less of. And so when it comes to climate, and I'm not saying on the specifics, because there's a lot of important things you need to think about how to do climate policy right. But um, having a carbon tax would be a twofer. It would raise money and encourage new adoption of new technologies moving into different forms of energy and help over time to, to bring down the carbon footprint. Now, I am yeah. so curious what... Uh, a, a a family conversation at the McGinnis household looks like, hey, let's get a new TV. Hey, let's go on vacation. Okay, how are you going to pay for that? <laughs> yeah, no, you want to know what a family conversation looks like? Oh, mom, we're going to have dinner at a friend's house. Like, okay, don't make us talk about the national debt again. <laughs> Seriously, okay, here, this story is true. My daughter was quite young. I don't know, five, six And I said, I think my husband went into her school and gave a little talk about his job. And I said, Annika, do you want me to come to your school and talk a little bit about the budget? And without missing a beat, my daughter says, oh, no, that's illegal at my school. <laughs> it's against the law. It's against the law to come talk about the budget, Mom. Sorry. Five years old. Just like, I don't make the rules. I'm sorry, Mom. I'm sorry. Yeah, nothing I can do about it. I'd love to have you, Mom. But, but um, yeah, no, my kids, they're pretty bored of it. Sometimes I try to talk to their friends about it. They're pretty bored of it. But in all seriousness... They shouldn't be because it will have a profound effect on younger people. The fact that not only have we borrowed this and they have to figure out what to do with it, but they are going to have so many new challenges that the budget should be able to respond to. The world is going to be entirely different when my teenagers are in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. And uh, that's a stupid, like, that's an obvious thing to say, hmm. but it's so different. Our budget's going to be, it need to be, should be entirely different than what it is today. Right. In fact, our budget's very outdated. Our biggest programs, Social Security, and Medicare, are there to address the biggest problems of when they were started, the 30s and the 60s, and that was seniors in poverty. Well, today, if you look at 
the poverty rates, the single richest group is those over 65. Not all of them, but that's the overall single, single richest cohort. The single poorest, children. But yet our budget still puts $6 for every one senior, for every one that it puts into programs for children under 18. That is quite a statement about our values and priorities that I would say doesn't make sense. And so what really concerns me is that we are leaving our kids with a budget where we've made promises to us on Social Security. We don't have a plan to keep them. Those trust funds are headed towards insolvency by 2035. But we've made promises and interest on the debt, fastest growing part of the budget. It's going to triple over the next 10 years. So our kids are going to be paying ever-growing interest costs because to finance the unwillingness of that we have to pay for our things. And so, yeah, my kids are running to dinner at somebody else's house where the conversation's more fun and interesting, but they should be <laughs> listening and they should invite their friends over for a fun speech from mom over pizza and why they should worry about the debt. Yeah, you know, because I, I was... I was talking to Corey right before we started recording, um, you know, I was admitting, okay, like finance economics isn't necessarily my strong suit. Um, but, you know, I don't remember going to school and being taught like a lot of the stuff that I think would be really, really beneficial for me to know right now. Um, I mean, like I have a 401k, but I couldn't tell you like who or where I'm invested. I mean, I, barely can remember my password to like log in to check my 401k. Um, and, and I feel like, you know, I, I, I can't help but think that like a lot of our sort of, you know, concepts of budgets are sort of rooted in the fact that nobody was really taught that well in high school. Um, and, you know, like I heard, you know, when I was a kid, a lot of like, Hey, social security is going away. Social security is going away. You need to invest in 401k, put as much as you want aside, you know? And I'm like, at that age, I'm like, what? Like social security, I don't even like, number one, what is it? <laughs> number two, why should I care? Um, and, and the same, and I had the same viewpoints about 401ks. So, so I guess like, what, what would you tell somebody, you know, that, um, is saying, you know, social security is going to go away. It seems like it's one of those things that it keeps being threatened. It's going to go away for like every generation. So is it really going away? So let me answer a bunch of questions or that were unpack a bunch of issues there. Mm -hmm. I'll talk about social security, but let me first say, I just completely agree about the need for more financial literacy, because I also didn't learn any of this in when I was young, middle school, high school, mm -hmm. college. I mean, I still, I still to this day don't really understand how much do you need to save for what kind of financial security, right? We are, most of us, and, and this, you know, this is a world that I understand pretty well, but it's still really hard or kinds of, you know, you get out of college, what insurances do you need? And how are you not vulnerable to insurance sales? People telling you, you need all these insurances. How do you really know? I, I can't believe we're not teaching these basic life skills. While we're at it, somebody should have taught me how to cook and somebody should actually teach us how to be parents. There are a bunch of things I wish I knew more. That'll but, preach. That will preach. But financial literacy for, for sure needs to be brought into this. The other piece of that is the like the government or basic economics. And I, I remember I was an econ, econ major, mainly because I tried to be a math major, but it was just too hard. So I became an econ psychology major. But I remember my dad once saying, you know, he was a lawyer and he said, Lawyers don't understand economics. I don't understand economics. Like it's something everyone should understand a little. So I'd say financial security and at least basic economics because it teaches you about trade-offs and opportunity costs. If you're doing one thing with a dollar, you can't be doing something else. And when it comes to the budget, people are always like, this is so important. We have to do it. Okay. 
That I'm not going to disagree with. But is it the most important use of that dollar? You know, is forgiving student debt more important than helping people who never were able to go to college or more important than protecting against cybersecurity? There's no right or wrong answer, but you have to understand that that dollar can only go one place. So I think some elementary education about budget, also really important. To that end, we built on our website, um, small promotion, but for the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget, people go onto our website. We have about 10 different interactive tools. Yes. I think they're really cool. Did you look at them? They are, and I'm horrible. I'm glad I don't have to do your job. (laughs) Because it shows you how hard it is to achieve any of these goals. And I'll tell you when that one's really good. So there's a bunch that are like, how would you fix Social Security? And I will get to your Social Security question. How would you bring the debt down to a reasonable level? And I often bring these in with members of Congress and say, I know, I know, you know everything on this topic, but secretly (laughs) shut the door in your office and go through these. And you're going to learn that those talking points where you're out there saying, I promise to do this without raising taxes. I promise never to touch Social Security. Like, you're going to see, if you're believing your talking points, you're going to see why they're not true. Like, we use them to educate people about the really tough choices that are involved. And some of them are also fun. Some of them are interesting and, like, what's your budget personality? So, please, people, feel free to go look at these interactive tools. Mm -hmm. Throw a party. Invite your friends over. (laughs) Now, there is one on how would you fix Social Security. It's been used by members of Congress to actually come up with legislation on Social Security reforms. And the answer to your question is Social Security is in real trouble. It will be there, but not in the form that it's been promised. What I mean by that is we promise people a certain amount of benefits based on what they paid in in payroll taxes and their working life. But we don't have enough money to pay for that. And so in 2035, when the money that has been saved for the purposes of Social Security has all been depleted in the so-called trust funds, if we have done nothing by then, and we should have already done it, there will be an automatic benefit cut for every beneficiary of about 23, 24, 25%. Now that will happen for the Bill Gates of the world and that will happen to the poor impoverished widow who depends on social security for 100% of her benefit. Mm -hmm. That's not okay, right? That's not okay that that is going to happen because our politicians have chosen not to address this issue. And like you can see in the social security reformer tool that we have, There are lots of ways that you can come together with a bill to fix it. You can raise the retirement age because we're living longer. You can slow the growth of benefits for people at the top end who don't need them as much. You can raise the payroll tax rate or cap the amount above which people don't pay any taxes. You have to do some combination of all of them, frankly, because we waited so long. The problem got really large. So you've got to do a little bit of everything. But what you really shouldn't do is wait another minute. And if there were one issue, I would say, not one issue that Congress should take up, because there's a lot of pressing issues. (laughs) Sure. I mean, there's national security issues, all sorts of things. But Mm. if there is an issue that there's no excuse to be waiting on, it's reforming our Social Security system. So, yes, um, part of your benefits will still be there, but not the ones you've been promised. And we're going to have to do some combination of slowing the growth of benefits, I think, for people who need them less so that people who depend on them will still have them and raising some revenues. But I honestly think there's a better use for revenues than putting it all into Social Security because we are not investing in our kids. We are not investing in our human capital. We are not investing in the changes that are going on in our economy from globalization Mm -hmm. and technology. So like there can only be that one use of a dollar. Before I put more money for benefits for people other than those who really need them, I'd think about what the best use of that dollar is. Um, And we're all going to have different preferences on how we fix it. So big place from where I come from is, and I think 
you guys from this this podcast, but is uh, we're all entitled to our different opinions. There's no right or wrong, but we're going to have to work them out and come up with some kind of a fix for Social Security and a whole lot of other urgent problems that we have been avoiding. I'm going to pick up on that last bit that you just said. I am curious about your involvement. In fact, you're a founder in an organization called Fix Us. Is that how you say it? Or Fix US? Fix US or Fix Us. That's why it's so clever. It could be either. (laughs) Yeah. So for listeners, Fix Us is committed to engaging fellow citizens to better understand and address our nation's growing divisions, dysfunction, and distrust in our political system. You're speaking my language. So tell us more about the organization, the work you're doing, and how it's going so far. Great. Well, sign up and become a member because we actually are engaging people to become a part of it. It's really, I think it's a really special group. So here's what happened. I've been working on this fiscal issue for 25, 30 years. I'm very passionate about it. I really care about it. As you know, I really care about it from a nonpartisan perspective, meaning we have to compromise. It's become painfully clear that we don't have the ability to resolve the toughest issues in this country while we are as polarized as we are. And so much like I think you all doing this, this uh, podcast is I, I felt like we needed to try to do something to make it better. And we weren't going to be able to achieve our core mission of fiscal responsibility as long as politicians are so busy fighting about uh, whose fault it is and how to give away more things and not do anything hard because they just want to score votes. And they tell themselves that when they have the majority, then they'll fix the budget, but they never do. So we created this group called Fix Us, and it is about understanding how we got here. What are the political, economic, cultural, technological issues that brought us to this moment and the failure of our elites and our leaders? Looking at all of them, how we got here, and then coming up with solutions in each of those areas. And the way we go about it is citizen engagement that so many people have tuned everything out because they are sick of two sides screaming at them, that where can we find a forum for learning more, civil discussion, coming up, sometimes crowdsourcing for the different kinds of uh, different things that we can work on together, and then building different efforts on whether it's, um, you know, financial education is a great thing, actually. I think that's the kind of thing that Fix Us would say is that in in order to have a knowledgeable and informed citizenry, you want to do things like financial education. But the biggest thing that we do is we bring together people at um, virtual breakfasts, lunches. We do a lot of virtual eating, um, but for different discussions where we have people who will come in and talk about the different issues facing us. We'll have a discussion about it and then brainstorm what the solutions are. And these are people who just are tired of, you know, want their country back, want a country that is trying to get something done. And basically we are, trying to figure out the division, the dysfunction, and the distrust, the three Ds as I call them, uh, how we got here and how we're going to change the course. But please, people sign up. We have a lot of um, just nice open discussion groups, and I'm finding a lot of really people who just care and want to be doing something helpful are becoming part of the organization. It's quite exciting. That's really encouraging the work that you're doing there and some of the progress it sounds like you're making because it is perhaps more than any particular a policy issue, the yes. idea that we can't seem to talk to each other is a, a huge symptom that needs to be addressed. Uh, I've been very involved with another organization that's been along these lines, huge presence in, in Florida and expanding nationally called Village Square. Uh, so it's very mm. much along the same lines of creating yes. forums uh, where folks 
Republicans, Democrats, independents can have healthier conversations. One follow-up question to that. Do you have any takeaways that you could share with us in terms of how we like just talking at our Thanksgiving dinner table or at our, you know, on the soccer field with our neighbors or uh, any takeaways at how we can, we can do better at bridging the divides? Yeah, I think my favorite one, and I fail at it many times too, but every time you feel yourself getting, you know, a little bit worked up, a little bit frustrated, a little bit angry. For me, it happens on the debt when people say things that I know are not true. You know, don't worry, we can just print more money. Don't worry, these tax cuts will pay for themselves. Like these things that just aren't accurate get kind of upset and, you know, this is leading us to bad things. But the trick that I think we've learned that works really well is every time you feel that, ask the person you're talking to a question. Don't tell them why they're wrong. Ask them a question and try to open up your sense that people are coming from a good place, not a bad place. It is this terrible assumption that someone's coming from a bad place that is really poisoning these discussions and our ability to learn from each other. And I'm pretty certain nobody shows up every day and says, I'm just going to do bad, right? I'm just going to do something <laughs> rotten. You don't think it, when people are reading the newspaper and yelling at this, this or that politician who they think is terrible and all the awful things they're doing and how their policies are so backwards, like, no one's trying to do the wrong thing. We have differences, and that's supposed to be what makes this country great. And we have to go back for ways to to really build that as our strength. It is our greatest strength, and that is all sorts of diversities. One of them is that we think differently. That's okay. That is a strength. But I do find asking questions, and not the kind like, why do you think something is so, why do you think something as stupid as that? Like asking your <laughs> questions to try to understand is a pretty good tool. I mean, that said, I've had more than one Thanksgiving dinner implode. I'm gonna I'm gonna remember that. I have a dinner tonight actually with a buddy. We come from very different points of view when it comes to gun legislation. But one thing that I think is a good start for the conversation is we both realize, you know what? We both really care about our families. We both really want to. Uh, protect our families and keep our families safe. Uh, so I'm going to remember that. I'm going to say, why are your ideas all wrong? I'm just going to start with that question. Yeah, I'll take no, your that's advice. a good question. Thank you. I'm glad it really, really worked. Um, I will say, though, you said, I think, one of the other most important things, because we spent a lot of time at Fix Us trying to figure out what will unify the country. And truly, the greatest unifier is uh, for parents, is for anybody who's ever had a kid, particularly in pain, I mean, we have a mental health crisis going on in this country right now that we have got to wake up and we have got to deal with. It is terrible what is happening to our kids and how much depression and anxiety and self-harm and suicide is going on out there. Any parent, but particularly a parent who has watched any child in pain, that is an incredible unifier. And I think there's something to build out of that because people care about their families and that, that is what makes us human. That is, that is the deepest connection there is. So that's another. Ask questions. Connect at our deepest human levels. And the third thing I've always thought is, can we find as a country some shared aspirations? And I don't know what that is. Like, can it be that we decide we want to win the World Cup in soccer or, you know, getting really rallying around the Olympics? I think healthy forms of competition, sports, not wars, you know, but things where you can be fighting against other countries in a healthy way. Um, I always think, like, should we have the great, what's that show, The Biggest Loser? Should we have a weight loss competition with some other country? But just oh, my goodness. To get us all <laughs> on the same page working on something together, um, I think 
shared aspirations and ambitions can be helpful as well. That's really awesome. Well, uh, Maya McGinnis, president of the Bipartisan Committee for Responsible Federal Budget, thank you so much for uh, answering our questions and just scaring us a little bit about Social Security um, <laughs> and uh, teaching us how to have great, great conversations. Yeah, thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks. We'll see you next week.